You can open up to Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy 30 this morning. Starting there in verse 11. We all struggle with choices, don't we? Choices can be hard sometimes, can't they? There are those choices that are easy, like when my wife looks at me and says, do you want me to save some of this cookie dough before I bake it? That's an easy one, right? Anybody else in here like the raw cookie dough? Yeah. All right. Amen. There are choices that are stressful and anxiety-producing, big ones like major life choices that many of you have to undergo often, or sometimes the most anxiety-producing are the small ones, like when you go to Cheesecake Factory and have to choose from their 4,000 options of food, right? And then there is that category of choices that seems like such an easy answer. It seems obvious to those outside your situation, but you, for some reason, still make a choice that just does not turn out well. When Kelly and I got married, we were very young and very naive. And so I somehow convinced her to get these two ugly black leather couches for our living room. She was kind to me and didn't tell me she didn't like them and that I had a terrible sense of decoration. But she didn't have to wait long until we got rid of them because, you see, at that time we had a cat that had some health issues that made it so that he wouldn't use his litter box. He would instead crouch up in one corner of the love seat and relieve himself. At first, we thought it was just an act of confusion, and so we simply cleaned it and warned people, don't sit there. But we quickly realized that he had decided to mark that corner, and so his behavior continued. So, like any pure and undefiled young Christians would, we nicknamed that couch the pea couch. Well, after the cat got some medical treatment, praise God for that, we realized that this couch was now ruined, but being young and in our newly purchased home, without the truck that I now have, we had no way to get rid of it in a cost-effective way. So we simply moved it out to the garage, we cleaned it up as best we could, and we thought we'd allow the dog to lay on it any time he was in the garage with us. Shockingly, he never wanted to. <laughs> well, that summer, we had a garage sale, and we placed the longer version, the couch, out on the, um, that hadn't been soiled by the cat, out on the driveway, and it was a hot item. It went quick. It was quickly picked up by this older man and his young daughter, and they seemingly didn't care how ugly the couch was as they said that she needed, quote-unquote, a couch for her new apartment. Well, as I was standing there collecting the money, and they were looking at me, they looked over to my left and saw into the garage, and they saw, dun-dun-dun, the pea couch. And they quickly started bartering with me so that they could own it. How much was it going to be? Well, you will be happy to know that your pastor told them right away, you do not, you do not want this couch. I promise you, you don't want it. And as adeptly as I could, I explained the issue, but they persisted. It can't be that bad. We'll just refurbish it, they said. But I refused and persisted. You do not want this couch. Well, they pushed past me, and they went over to the couch, and I kid you not, when they got within a foot of the couch, reeled away in disgust as they caught their first whiff of how badly it smelled. Surely, I thought, they will now give up their bartering. Well, to my unmatched surprise, even as the dad was turning to collect fresh air into his nostrils, he says, I'll give you $10 for it. 
Now, I immediately persisted with, no, 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 no. If you want it that bad, just take it. You can have it free of charge. Instead, he hands me the $10 as he holds his nose to bend down and get one of the cou- end of the couch to carry it to the truck. And I'm not kidding you, both he and his daughter carried it like this the whole way. He says to me, as he places it in the truck, no, it's not that bad. It's worth it. Now, I know that one man's junk is another man's treasure, Brian Felix. (laughs) But where is Brian? Is he in here? Oh, man, I'm making fun of him. He's not even here. Okay, somebody's got to tell him he's got to listen. One man's junk is another man's treasure, but come on. I learned that day that sometimes even when things absolutely make no sense or logic... And they even end in disgust or destruction. We humans love to make horrible choices, don't we? I hope I've not lost your respect by sharing such a gross story this morning, but I think it perfectly pictures our nature as humans to choose situations and relationships and activities that are so not good for us. Even when we know the outcome, we know how badly that sin within us smells. We have a tendency to make the choice in which to breathe deeply, and to harm ourselves and potentially others. Today, we will see that Israel had a choice. They had a choice between life and death, obedience and disobedience. And the scripture tells us that they collectively chose disobedience and death. But rather than beat them up for the fact or pretend that we are better than them, we need to see how their choice compares to our own today in 2019. We need to see what we do in the same situation And what we will find, I think, is that while it is truly bad news that our nature is to make decisions just as horrible and just as gross as that man's decision at our garage sale years ago, we will see that God has provided a way for us to be redeemed and transformed and give us the chance once again to make the right choice. And in the midst of this truth, we will be given some strong theological principles to help guide us in our walk with Christ. So let's take a look and read from our text today in Deuteronomy 30, starting in verse 11. For this commandment, Moses says, that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandment of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them." What we see first is a very clear statement. God is near us, 
and has graciously made it simple to be in relationship with him. God is near us and has graciously made it simple to be in relationship with him. Notice that I made it say simple, not easy. Simple. The people of Israel that were about to enter into the promised land already knew how close God was to them. They were to be the people that recaptured the closeness that our first father Adam had with God as he walked with God in the cool of the garden. Remember the point of the law as stated in Deuteronomy 4, verses 6 through 8. Moses said he gave them the commands and he told them, keep them and do them for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? By keeping God's commands and walking in his ways, they would provide the world this view of how good and how near Yahweh was and how much he desires as a creator to be with those that bear his image. They would show that he is a God who is near, not far off. You feel like God's near or far off today? Some of you might be going through things where it feels like he is very far off, but the word tells us time and time again in absolute clarity that he is near you, even in those moments where you feel completely alone and isolated. God is near you. He's not far off. You see, the tendency of humanity is to believe that God is far off, that to get to him, we must go through these mystical and ascetic hoops as if we needed to become monks who can transcend the vast gap between man and God with special knowledge or special religious tradition, or if I could just read my Bible more, or if I could just do this, then finally God would want to be close to me. It's more pathology than it is truth. Thinking to ourselves, just similarly as we do with other people, if I could just be a different person, maybe people would like me better. The reality is, is God is already near to you. This was what the New Testament church taught and they were, uh, when they were fighting against, in their day, the beginnings of Gnosticism. And this is what we fight against in any theological system where there is a special group or a special strata of people that have special spiritual gifts or special knowledge. I fight against this constantly with people. Well, that person is gifted spiritually or they have a gift of the Spirit, but the reality is, as Ephesians 4 tells us, we are all gifts of the Spirit to one another with special talents and giftings to be able to enrich the body and build it up. It's not just pastors up here and everybody else down there, brothers and sisters in Christ, underneath Christ. And Moses was trying to tell the Israelites this, that the commandment of God, the Torah, and really the covenant is not too hard, nor is it too far off. And he uses two proverbs or idioms of ancient Near East, uh, the ancient Near East world. He says, you don't need to ascend to heaven. In our words today, we would say you don't need to seek enlightenment or nirvana or spiritual transcendence. You don't need to have that moment at church where suddenly, oh, now I'm saved. You also don't need to have a special knowledge of God's word. Guys, his word is there available for everyone regardless of your education level, regardless of how fast you read it, regardless of how quickly it makes sense. The point is it's there for you. God had so loved Israel that he had graciously provided for them. 
He was a God that desired covenant relationship and intimacy with them, and he wanted this so much that he elected the people of Israel through his choice of Abraham. And he revealed himself and his word to them. And Moses is making the point that God is not holding anything back so as to have power over his people. He has done and given everything so that they would be his, just as he has for you. It's interesting to me when I talk to Christians who think that God is maybe holding back some of his spirit. He hasn't quite given me this supposed second work of the spirit. And I just, I wonder what I have to do in order to get it. Well, the reality is, is there is no second work of the spirit. When you say, Lord, I'm yours, he gives you the fullness of his spirit. And you grow in transformation from that point on. Moses also says this idiom of you don't need to go over the seas to get it. For humans of this day, of of Moses' day, the proposal would have been very dangerous or fearful as it would have been potentially to sail to the end of the earth and fall off. Because remember, in this day, they thought it was a flat disk and that the oceans poured over the edge. It was impossible to do. Only a titan or a hero of mythology could do this. But Moses says, you don't need to do that. God has given you freely his word, his command. God has brought it to you. It is so near you. God's very word is in you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. And in the day of Moses, it would have been completely implausible for any of the Israelites to have a written copy of the law. You think about that ever? They were called to obey the commands, and they did not have what you have in your hands. Imagine that. Parents, do you think it was important to teach your kids how to follow the Lord? The reality is, is that it was all done audibly. The passing on of the Torah was to be done verbally by parents to children and from brother to brother and sister to sister. It was an oral tradition. It was in their mouths. And this word that was supposed to be constantly upon their lips in reciprocal teaching and admonition was to take root in their hearts to practice the great Shema, to love the Lord with all their heart, mind, and strength. This is Christianity just as much as it was following Yahweh of the Old Testament. How much is the Lord and his word on your lips? Not just in Christianese, not just in, well, I got a verse for you, let me pull it out of context, but in terms of, let's worship the Lord together. Is he our Lord? Is he our King? Is he our Savior? How can we bring his ways to the world before us? Now, this is where it gets interesting because Moses then says, it's near you, it's in your mouth, it's in your heart, so that you can do it. Moses says the point for God to be near and bring his word near and within you is so that you can do it, you can obey it. And this is where the record screeches to a stop for many of us and we reel back in confusion. God's law is given to us so that we can do it, so that we can perform it and obey it, and he makes it simple for us so that we can do it. Then why, you and I might ask, do I keep doing things and making decisions that stink? I keep picking up couches that smell, so to speak. Well, this is the second thing we need to know today. Because of sin, we make the simplicity of relationship with God impossible. Because of sin, we make the simplicity of relationship with God impossible. You know, I'm married to a wonderful woman who says that she loves me and I know that I love her, and yet somehow in the midst of our marriage, we still argue and fight and my selfishness comes to bear all the time. It makes no sense, does it? You'd think it was pretty simple. You'd just love your wife with all your heart, mind, and soul, and yet somehow my stupidity gets in the way. What is the problem? Well, I like to blame Satan, but... <laughs> The reality is, is I participate with Satan sometimes. 
I let the sin inside of me within this mortal body come to bear, and it breaks the simplicity of relationship. It should be simple. Marriage should be so simple, shouldn't it? Love your spouse with all your heart, mind, and soul. And yet it's so, so hard. But it's because of sin. We make the simplicity of relationship with God, just like relationship with one another, almost impossible. We're no different than Israel. We're no different than our first father, Adam. Look at verse 15 there. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Moses set before Israel the choice of life or death, good and evil, good and evil in Hebrew, tov vara. Everybody say it, tov vara. Say it one more time, tov vara, good and evil. Now, if you go back and you look, one of the cool things about studying the Bible in a different language, and I'm by no means fluent, um, we've got better people in here who know Hebrew better than I do, but the reality is, is when you look at it in Hebrew, your eyes catch something pictorially that we don't often uh, catch when we're reading it in English. And when you read it in the Hebrew, you see that tov vara is all throughout the book of Genesis. It's one of the main themes. And it hops off the page at you. All throughout Genesis, God is saying, I want you to choose the tov, the good, but you always choose the raw. And the story of the Old Testament is how we choose the evil. We choose the raw time and time again. And as Deuteronomy closes, we see not only the bookend to the book of Deuteronomy here, but we see the bookend to the entirety of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And the Bible, so to speak, For the Jews standing on the banks of the Jordan about to enter into the land was the oral Torah given by Moses. It was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That was it. They didn't have anything else. And it was given audibly, orally by Moses. And we see here the closure of the Torah. And when we look at the early bookend there in Genesis, we see the story of creation in Genesis 1. You've got the bookend of Genesis 1, and here we are closing the book, so to speak, in Deuteronomy. We see that God created everything and said on each day, okay, this is question and answer time, see if you paid attention in your Sunday school classes, every day that God created something, he would look at it and he would judge it and he would declare it what? Good. He would declare it good, very good. What God created was good. And when he created man and woman, he needed to make a tweak. It wasn't bad, but it wasn't great that man dwelt alone. And so he created woman and he joined them together as a covenant union, an earthly picture of God's heavenly covenantal love for his people. And he said that even mankind was what? Good. Now, we often forget that in Reformed theology. We think we are terrible sinners in need of a Savior. Yes, absolutely true. Don't ever forget that. But the reality is, is we bear the image of God that, in a sense, was then perverted and broken by original sin. God placed us in a paradise in which we could dwell in covenant unity and loyalty with him and one another, eating of the tree of life. But then in chapter 2, what does it say that God presented to them? Look at Genesis 2, 15 through 17 there on the screen, or you can turn there in your Bible if you want. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in, it, in the, uh, the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The tree of the knowledge of tov vara, good and evil. He gave them access to all that is good. He created the trees and he said, these are good. But he said, make the choice to stay away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, tov vara. You shall not eat because it will bring death. Now, many people say, why would God place it there? Well, if you read scripture, everything God created is good, but he says, this one is not good to eat. Don't eat of that. What does that mean? It means God didn't create it. It was placed there. Who was it placed there by? 
That's a little bit of a mystery, but we could guess, right? The reality is, is that God said, you don't want this tree because in eating of that tree, it wasn't that the tree had some special chemical formula that would suddenly mutate them and all of a sudden now they're sinners. It was that in doing so, they were breaking the commands of God and breaking the bond of covenant love with God and saying, we can make decisions on our own. We were created to rely wholly upon the Lord as judge of tov varah, of good and evil. And it was not ours to choose. Because when we choose, we pick up pea couches. (laughs) When we choose, we're dogs that go back to our own vomit, as the Bible says. You think I'm gross. The Bible itself says dogs go back and return to their vomit. We go back to our sin. And yet, even though it wasn't ours to choose, we did. We judged for ourselves what was right and good, and then we paid handsomely for it with our own lives and our own separation from our Creator. We removed God and placed ourselves on the throne to be judges of Tov Farah. And this moment of choice repeats itself with mind-boggling regularity in our lives, does it not? The choice of the garden repeated. In Deuteronomy 30 and in my daily life, we still do the same thing as in the garden when he commands us to love one another, seemingly a simple command, we give our reasons why our perspective is better. When he commands us to humble ourselves, we stiffen our necks and we give our perspective of how we have been wronged. Our self-protection says, no way, Lord, I know what will happen if I obey you and trust you. It won't go well for me. I'd rather pick up this pea couch. It's not too bad. It's worth it, we say. Our sinful nature makes it so difficult to follow God that Jesus said this about human nature in Matthew 7, 13, and 14. He says, enter by the narrow gate, meaning himself and his teachings, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. In other words, it's our innate gear. It's what we operate in. And those who enter By it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Is he contradicting Moses? It's near you, it's in you, it's easy, so do it. No, the reality is, his original sin entered the picture and busted us up. The way is hard, and few will find it. Even though Moses was totally correct, God is near, and his laws are simple in principle, and near us to agree with and obey. Even then, we are so twisted by selfishness and sin that we refuse and easily choose death over life. Guys, if it were as simple as checkboxes, do you not think we'd all be holy? I've been a project manager for years in my life prior to being a pastor. Running projects is super simple. You build it up in Microsoft Project, You do a bunch of checkboxes and you go through one to a hundred and you get the project done and you do it on time and you do it under budget. So why don't we just do that? Why don't Bible companies come out with a biblical Microsoft project version in which we have our checkboxes of how we can be holy and go one through 100 and then we die? Because it's not that easy. And yet that's what we make it out to be as Christians, isn't it? If I just mark the checkboxes, If I just do these things. The horrific nature of the old covenant for us is this. While it is good and simple, it remains true that disobedience leads to death, and our innate gear is what? Disobedience. Now look at verses 18 and 19 there. I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. 
Moses says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. See, God's abiding by his own law. He's saying, don't say something is wrong with the person. Don't accuse them unless you have two witnesses. Well, he's bringing all of creation to testify to the fact that you and I are disobedient. And we see in verses 18 and 19 the words of the garden. Eat of this tree and you will die. Obey and you won't. You'll have life, but disobey and you'll have death. These words are eerily repeated here. And if you choose disobedience, you will be choosing death. You will be choosing the curse. This is why the Apostle Paul, in his writings to the church, told us as believers that we are all under a curse. We're under this curse. We are disobedient and therefore have repeated the curse time and time again. Heaven and earth stand before us and they act as willing witnesses, sealing the covenant obligations and acting as witness to the fact that we as humans do not obey God. That's heavy when you truly think about it. The Bible says that when the end comes and we stand in judgment before the Lord, heaven and earth will flee away. Whenever our kids get in trouble and one of them is in trouble and the other two know that the wrath of dad is coming, guess what they do? They flee away because they don't want to stand before the judgment. I can't even imagine what this will be like. And so what is the solution? Well, it's to realize the commands of God are simple and we need to just choose differently, right? Try harder. Make better choices, people. Come on. Is that what it's saying? No. To do so is impossible. White-knuckling Christianity does not work. It may work for a few hours, maybe even a few days, maybe if you're holy enough, a week. It's impossible. We can be as zealous as we want in that direction, and we will still be blocked by the innate sinfulness within us. So what do we do about it? Well, Paul's answer as he contemplates the passage we've read today in Deuteronomy 30 is very, very simple. It's to turn to Jesus Christ. You see, the third point I want to give you today is this. In Jesus, we find the forgiveness of our disobedience, and we also find empowerment for obedience. In Jesus, we find the forgiveness of our disobedience and empowerment for obedience. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans 9.30. And I know you're all reeling because I'm 26 minutes in and I'm already at my third point. So everybody take a breath. I know you're shocked. But don't worry, we're going to go through some more scripture here. Turn to Romans 9.30. And take a look there. We're going to look at what Paul said using the passage from Deuteronomy that we are looking at today to speak of what the Father has done through Christ. Romans 9:30, verses 10 through or 9:30 through 10:3. It says this. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion 
a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. See, there it is, the zeal. Man, they were good project managers at holiness. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Paul begins by outlining what we are saying, that Israel failed in attaining righteousness in the sight of God because they tried to attain it on their own. Collectively, they tried to simply act righteous and go against their innately broken, internally sinful self, seeking to establish righteousness on their own. Now, there were individuals within Israel that were close to Yahweh and walked in covenant faithfulness, but that was because they wholly relied upon Yahweh for the power to do so. But the whole, the collective whole of the people tried white-knuckling to obey the law, seeking to establish righteousness on their own. Paul makes very clear here that this is impossible. It might seem zealous and God-driven, but it is foolish and without knowledge. Those Jews, such as Moses, that walked in life knew that they needed to rely upon God's mercy, his grace and redemption, that he was the Exodus God, that he was the one that redeemed them, that he was the one that provided the word, that he was the one that provided the land. And they needed to rely upon him moment by moment to propel them forward. And they knew that when they did break the covenant, when they did sin, he's the one that provided the sacrificial system in order to bring them back into right relationship. They were looking for one that would change their heart and usher in a new covenant that would circumcise their hearts. This small remnant of people, this was who followed Yahweh. And this is what we learned just a few weeks ago, that the current hope they had was absolute reliance upon Yahweh as the source of their relationship with him. And the future hope, long in the future, was that God would one day completely change their hearts. To believe this idea that we can innately within ourselves decide to walk in righteousness is heresy. A few hundred years ago, you'd be burned at the stake for believing it, and yet it's pervasive in Christianity. It's what's called Pelagianism. If you want to, you can write it down, or the slide will be up on the website here soon. Pelagianism is the theological position that, that original sin, the original sin, did not taint human nature. And mortal will is still capable of choosing good or evil without special divine aid or assistance. You see, on our own, we cannot be good. And that is why we need both the imputed righteousness of Jesus and the imparted righteousness of Jesus. Imputed means he gives us, he robes us in that righteousness that Seth talked about in his prayer. He robes us in the righteousness of Christ so that the Father sees us not through our sin, but through the perfection of his Son. And he imparts to us righteousness as well as he gives us the Holy Spirit. He breathes that into our lives. And so we, moment by moment, transform more into his image, growing in transformation and in holiness to follow him until the day of glorification, never fully reaching perfection, but growing moment by moment. Look there at Romans 10, 4 through 5. Paul uses a quote from Moses in the book of Leviticus here to say that unless you can keep the whole of the law, you are disobedient. Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now, rather than getting rid of the law and saying, okay, obviously the law is wrong, notice that he says it's righteousness based on the law. It's white-knuckling it. 
And to be clear here, this is really, really important, guys. He was not talking about the detail or minutia of the law. I think that's what many people believe, that the Jews, they believe that the Jews were punished for disobedience because they forgot to check certain checkboxes and therefore failed. But guys, remember that the law had included within it, right at the beginning of Leviticus, sacrifices that could be made when mistakes occurred. Even for the Jews, God did not require absolute checkbox perfection. It was not the minutia that caused God to look upon them as disobedient children. It was the fact that they wholly walked away from God in their daily worship that they turned to idols and refused him the place of lordship in their lives, that they proclaimed with their mouths that they were followers of Yahweh, but then looking at their lives, there were idols everywhere, seeking their time, their talents, their treasure, their attention, their worship. And so we today compare disobedience of the law to when we forget a morning devotional or raise our voice at our kids and we think, oh, I failed again, see? I sinned. But that is not the disobedience of the law that is being discussed ever. God knows you're going to make mistakes. Remember, he created you. He wasn't shocked. What Israel did and what we do is that they removed the authority of God as Lord of their lives and raised up idols instead. They raised up the idolatry of needing people to think that they're cool. They raised up the idolatry of being successful in work and in their social life. They raised up the idolatry that is prominent across social media I loved the text that I got last night that said it's called a selfie because narcissisty is too long to write. (laughs) Right? They raised up idols. We are one of the most idolatrous nations that's ever existed anywhere. The same false gods that we serve daily in place of worshiping the one true gods, we mimic and exemplify what Israel was doing in disobedience. And so the idea that we will, of our own selfish accord, put these down and follow Christ is not possible. What we need instead is divine help. And I've noticed this over the years as a pastor. Man, when somebody's walking in sin and they're very clear that they're just not going to stop it, I used to fight. I used to go, well, no, brother, come on, let let me beg you. Let me try and convince you that your sin is wrong. And I've realized over the years that if the Lord's not doing the convincing, then there's no point in me trying. If there's not conviction, conviction etern- internally, then there's no point in me externally giving conviction. You see, the same God that desired to be near his people, Israel, is the same God that is near to us through the work of Jesus Christ. Just as they needed the sacrificial system, we need the sacrifice that ends all sacrifices because we need divine help. And the good news of the Bible is that we serve a God that gives us just that. Look at verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. See, God is so near to us and loves us so much that he sent not only his word, but he sent his son, the word incarnate, Jesus the Christ, to die in our place. He didn't require us to come to him through transcendent thought, through being good enough kids. He left his throne to come to us and to die for us as the sacrifice that brings us forgiveness and pays the debt that we owe 
to a holy and righteous God. He didn't require us to do the impossible and descend into the abyss or cross the sea to raise up Christ from the dead. The Father did that. You and I didn't have to do that. He did that miraculous work to show us that resurrection only comes from him and is given only by his gracious hand. And because of this, the gospel that we believe is in our mouths. It is ready to be taught and proclaimed to those around us. If you're scared of giving the gospel to someone verbally, just remember what you know, that God is near us and he has given us everything in Christ. Christ died for us to take away our sins. Christ rose for us to prove us victorious, that we will one day resurrect with him. Use what is in your mouth and in your heart to proclaim the gospel to those that so badly need it. The gospel is in our hearts drawing us, not only to proclaim the gospel to people, but further, it's drawing us further into the transforming grace of God. When we look at Romans 10.4, we see this awesome statement. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And the word end here in the Greek comes from a word teleos that is ambiguous and could mean end as in removal or abrogation of the law. Take it away. It's done. And it also could mean the end as in the ultimate goal, like the end of a race. Commentators argue over which is correct. I was so frustrated as I was studying this weekend because this commentator says this and this commentator says this and Romans is one of the most hotly debated sections, especially this section. But I think that maybe it's ambiguous because it's both. In Christ, we realize that we no longer need to follow the detail of the Mosaic law. You don't need to practice the festivals. You don't need to practice the sacrificial system. We no longer need to give those daily and annual sacrifices to be cleansed. The reason is, is because Christ, the end of the law, has died once for all. But in Christ, we also have a champion that is the perfect fulfillment of the law. When we read the Gospels, what we see is not just a message of how we get to heaven. It is that, and we're thankful for that, to be with the Lord. But more so, it is, this is what obedience looks like. This is Israel as it was intended. This is Adam as he was intended. This is man as he was intended. And dear Christian, this is you as you are intended. There is a moral model in Christ that doesn't remove the need for the sacrifice, but it does call us to mimic Jesus. And that's why Paul said, as I follow Jesus, you follow me. And that's what we're called to do, to follow along with Christ. Because perfect Obedience of Christ allowed him not only to be the sacrifice on our behalf, the spotless lamb, but it also means that as we live in Christ, we will be transformed to follow Christ more and more closely. Dear brother or sister, if you're repeating the same issues over and over, maybe, maybe you need to humble yourself. If you find that the transformation isn't happening as fast as you want, ask yourself, where am I stiffening my neck? Well, let's continue in Romans 10, 9. Because, it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you hear the strains of Paul relying heavily, heavily upon the great Shema here? For the Jewish reader, what they would think 
let me ask you, what do you think it would mean for them to believe in their heart? The word believe comes from a Greek word that relates to trusting in and having allegiance or faithfulness towards. It's pistuo, which comes from pistis, which means faithfulness, not just mental assent. It means that as you give your allegiance to Christ as Lord, your heart will obey Christ. An outward confession linked to an inward conversion and transformation is the fullness of the process of salvation that lasts throughout the life of the believer. And verses 9 and 10, as you've often heard me state, are not to be taken out of context and used as a magical incantation that gives credence to altar calls as a replacement for repentance and baptism. To do so leads new believers to a place where they hear that all that is required of them is to say a prayer or raise a hand and it removes the massive requirement of repentance and submission to the Lord's authority. To say that Christ removes the requirement of obedience in the life of the believer under the guise of a misappropriate definition of grace is to enter into another heresy that's called antinomianism. You can write this one down, antinomianism. And I know that oftentimes it's hard for people who, if they're not theology students, it's hard to gauge these things, Pelagianism and antinomianism. Hans, why are you even giving these to us? Because these are the bumpers in your bowling alley, Christian. If you go to one side and I have to white-knuckle obedience. I have to be holy, which often I think sometimes you guys hear me say when I'm preaching on obedience, I just got to try harder. Well, guys, that's heresy. That is not following Christ. That's relying upon yourself. And the other bumper on the other side of the alley is antinomianism. It's all grace, baby. Oh, it's okay that I beat my wife and that I curse every five seconds and that I, drug, I, I take this drug or I smoke this thing. No big deal. God's grace will save me, man. And every new Sunday is basically you Sinning so that you can get forgiven. Sinning so that you can get forgiven. This is the other bumper. It's antinomianism. And these two bumpers keep us in the alleyway of orthodox gospel, which is that we are not saved by any form of works of our own, but only by the grace of Jesus Christ, by faith in his grace. And as he then pours out his spirit into our life as part of the transformation of the Christian, obedience begins to occur. It is not perfect, but it begins to occur. And so, in Jesus, we find the perfectly obedient Son, and because of this, in his death on the cross, he was our perfect sacrifice for sin. By accepting his sacrifice and proclaiming him as Savior, we are forgiven our sins. But then also, by proclaiming his resurrection, we likewise proclaim that he is our ascended and enthroned King that calls us into obedience each and every day. I think that's often why we focus so heavily on his death to the dismissal of his resurrection. The death brings us forgiveness. We like that part, amen? I do too. It's okay. It's not a bad thing, amen? But he likewise was resurrected and is throned, enthroned as king. That's hard for us to remember sometimes. He's alive right now, calling you and I to obedience. If you've not accepted and declared Jesus as your savior and your king, then we want to walk with you as you do, and we want to support you as you grow together in love with him. And two of the elders were gonna, uh, are going to be back in the back for prayer during worship, and we would love to pray with you if you're convicted today that you need to enter into relationship with Jesus. I want to ask you, if that's you, will you come back and pray with us? Don't be afraid. We're not going to bite you. We would love to pray with you and walk with you as you walk in more depth with Christ. If you do know Jesus... You might have the same question that many of us do. If Jesus is near us, if his law of love and justice and righteousness is easy to obey, then why do I find it so hard to do so? Why do I keep making decisions that stink and paying for it on the way out? 
maybe, just maybe, it's because that you stated that Jesus is Lord with your mouth, but you have not indicated it with your life. You've not given the fullness of your life and your heart over to Christ as king. Look back with me one last time to Deuteronomy 30. Go back there with me. And notice the two processes that Moses indicates. I think they're still very important for us to notice today. The first process is how to obey the Lord. Look at verse 16. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by, okay, here we go. How are we doing it? Loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways, and by keeping his statutes, commandments, uh, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then, and he goes on to speak about what will happen. So by loving the Lord, walking in his ways, not just saying they are good, but walking in them along with God's people and keeping his commandments. The second process is what happens when our hearts are idolatrous. Look at verse 17 there. But if your heart turns away, you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them. So the process here is our hearts turn away from God. We stop listening to God, to his word, to his people, to the church. And we are drawn away and worship other gods in idolatry. If that is you and I, that second process, then we need to repent and turn back to Jesus and his ways and his commands. Let me give you a quick tip. There was a point in my life where I kind of stopped listening to my pastor and to the elders of the church. I'd come and I'd go, I know the stories he's going to use. I know where he's basically going to go. I've been here before. I've read through the Bible multiple times. If that's happening in your life, notice that you're pretty close to you will not hear. Maybe your heart has already turned away and it's time to repent. Now, it doesn't mean you have to find all my stories funny. It doesn't mean you have to forget that you know most of them because I use them a lot. But it does mean that when we're in the word, are you hearing it? Are you hearing it? Are you allowing it to penetrate your heart? Or have idols in your life caused you to start to distance from the Lord, his word, and his church. Remember that repentance is not a white-knuckled change of behavior or submission to God's authority through gritted teeth. It is humble submission to his drawing so that we might turn away from what we worshipped previously and turn towards him in love and allegiance. And if we do that, we will begin to do good works out of the overflow of our nearness to him. That's why Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says that we are saved by grace through faith, but Ephesians 2, 10 says that we then go on to do good works, that we're, we're destined by God's grace to do. And so these good works overflow out of our constant desire to proclaim with our mouths and our lives that he is Lord. You see, the outcome of the statements in Deuteronomy 30 are still true. If we rely upon the grace of God who has drawn us, who has saved us, who has forgiven us, and now works within us to do good on his behalf, then we will see eternal life. If we rely upon ourselves and our good works to elevate us into a relationship with God, we will be overcome by our sinful natures that are contrary to Christ, and we will enter into eternal death and resurrection of judgment. One of the big signs for me in my life of whether or not I am relying upon Christ is my prayer life. You might have noticed that when we brought on the new elders, we started to divvy up some of the responsibilities of the pastoral prayer and the missional prayer, and they go longer now. And at first I was like, man, people are going to have, you know, an hour and 10 minutes of me, and then, wow, this is going to get longer and longer and longer. And I started to realize, no, I need to probably pull back my teachings, and obviously I'm still working on that. Okay, so give me, give me some time and some grace, right? i got to pull back my teachings a bit because prayer is important. And as 
Elders, if we are simply thinking that we, by our own power and our own teaching, can transform this church and transform your lives, then we have something coming that is not good. And so we need to rely upon the grace of Jesus, and we need to beg him and petition him for the movement and transformation in us and in the world in the pastoral prayer, and we need to call upon his power to empower us to send us out and proclaim the gospel. How's your prayer life, Christian? Are you relying upon Christ to do the work of transformation? Or did you stop praying with the one prayer where you asked for him to save you? If we rely upon ourselves and our good works to elevate us into a relationship with God, we will be overcome by our sinful natures that are contrary to Christ and we will enter into eternal death and resurrection of judgment. But if you rely upon him, he has already given us life. Turn with me to one last place. I want to cement this with some of the words of Jesus. Turn with me to John 5. John 5, starting in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, The Son can do nothing of his own accord. See, even Jesus needed to rely upon the power of the Father. But only what he sees the Father doing, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to to whom he will. You think that was a little foreshadowing of the resurrection there? The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Okay, so all these people that say, I'm not that bad a person, I've never murdered anyone, I generally do good, they're fine, right? That's what that's saying. No, the reality is, is as we taught today, no one does good. There is not one righteous. No person can do it. But it still says that we will be judged based on our works. That's odd. I thought I was based, judged based upon Christ. Well, it's both. Notice that Jesus is using the exact same statements of good and evil, death and life as Moses. And also notice what we are judged by at the end of days. We are judged and will be judged by our works. We are saved by the works of God and made righteous by the work of Christ. Nothing we can do. Without that, we are doomed to punishment and judgment. But our works that are intended to follow in accordance with the kingdom of light or either the kingdom of darkness will bear witness to whether we truly have Jesus as Lord of our lives and if we have been converted by him. The heresy of antinomianism is done away with quickly here, is it not? But then let's look a little bit later. Look at John 5, 37. And if the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me, 
His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Man, I think that is huge for the church. How many people, how many of us in this room attend church because we want the popularity of other people, the social subculture it brings, the acceptance into a social circle? Or how many of us come here regardless of what's going on with one another because we seek the glory of God? He says, verse 45, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Because remember, they were trying to gain relationship with God by checking the checkboxes. Verse 40, uh, 46, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You see, dear brothers and sisters, we can search the scriptures night and day. We can become experts on what is morally good. We can know all the stories and all the parables. We can grow up in the church our entire lives. But if we do not realize that the whole point is to direct us into the loving arms of our Savior and the sovereign reign of our King, then we miss the whole point. We cannot gain life on our own. We cannot do it on our own. And here, the heresy of Pelagianism is done away with quickly. Moses knew that the people would choose the evil, and so he looked for the day that you and I are fortunate enough to see. Today and every day of our lives, we are in the church age where Christ has poured out his spirit upon the people he has forgiven. And we are given the choice between what is tov and what is raw every moment of every day, what is good and what is evil. And the first choice and most important choice that matters is the choice of whether or not to accept Jesus' lordship over your life. Jesus' lordship. Not just his free gift of salvation, it is surely and truly that, but also his lordship. Today, make the choice to take on life and not death. Make the choice to give everything to Christ as your king. And from that point on, as you love him, as you lean into him and his people and his word, you can rely on the same gracious spirit that saved you and drew you among his covenant people to assist you in transforming you into the obedient children that you desire to be. But your part is simply humility and reliance upon him. I want you to pause for a moment today and ask, what choices in my life, what current choices, conscious or subconscious. Hans, how do I know my subconscious? Look at how they're playing out in your life. What choices in my life are causing me to turn away from God, to distance from his word, and to distance from his people? What choices are hardening my heart to Christ's truth? I want you to think about that for a second. Now, these choices may be obvious sins that need to be removed. Or they could be mundane choices. Choices that are not all that bad in the world's eyes. That slowly but surely remove Christ as a priority of your life. What choices do you need to turn over to Christ today? Choose life. 
Choose Christ. Choose him over the world. Today, let's glory that he has given us life in spite of our disobedience. Let's glory in the fact as we go to the table of communion that we do this not to check a checkbox, but to remind ourselves of the immense, massive grace of God that he has forgiven us all our disobedience, all of our raw, all of our evil. And let's call upon him as Lord to give us the obedience by his spirit that is necessary to proclaim with our mouths, our hearts, and our lives that he is Lord of all. As we go to the communion table, let's hear the choice between life and death, the choice between good and evil, and let's choose to submit ourselves to Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.